Hello everyone, I am super excited and honored today to have a Stanford Law classmate with me here, Anique Jordan. Anique, do you want to give a quick one-sentence intro what you think is most important for people to know about you? Sure. Um, as Yvette said, I went to law school with her. I'm from California and moved to New Orleans to work at the Public Defender's Office. I've been working at Orleans Public Defenders for almost two years. Cool. And what inspired you to be a public defender? I know this is a difficult question for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just have so many thoughts whenever someone asks me that question. So I'm going to just try to think of when I first thought yeah. about, when I first even knew that this was a possibility as a job. I guess the major reason why I wanted to go to law school was to to help people, to say it simply. I really believe that the law was used by people in positions of power to continue to keep oppressed people down, and I wanted to do something about that. So I didn't really know what that meant for me, specifically in terms of what particular jobs I would want to be doing, but that's really what drew me to law school. I always envisioned that I would likely do impact litigation and you know, actually engage in lawsuits against these larger structures and states and agencies, etc. I had a mentor in law school who had spent, he was a year older than me, above me in law school, and he had spent a summer working at the Public Defender's Office, one of the offices in New York. And that was really the first time that I'd even heard of that position or public defender offices or was really interested in it. He had a really great experience and suggested that I check it out before I really make the decision to go into impact litigation. So I decided that I would spend my first summer after um, my first year of law school at a public defender's office so I could see if I you know, wanted to rule it out before making that decision. And I absolutely fell in love with it. So I also spent a summer that summer working in New York. And then it was a pretty... A, pretty well-funded office compared to uh, my office here in New Orleans, and I just got a lot of advice from a lot of people there who had worked in other offices around the country to check out an office that was very different from most of the New York offices. Um, and so that's what brought me to New Orleans. I thought I would just spend a summer here working at the office to get a different experience, knowing that I wanted to be a public defender once I graduated from law school but I was not expecting to stay, or I was not expecting to want to come back, but I just fell in love with New Orleans in this office. Yeah. So. I fell in love with New Orleans food this weekend. <laughs> yes, I mean, the food and music, I think, are really what keeps people here. Yeah. <laughs> So I think I've described the difference between impact lit and direct legal services before, but I feel like since you're mentioning it now, it's important to define it for folks who are thinking about law school who might not know the difference. So impact lit is like you said, suing states, agencies, or strategically bringing forth cases because you want to change some aspect of already existing law. And direct legal services is where you are directly representing the individual in their proceedings, whether that be criminal or civil. And I think a huge difference that I've experienced is the amount of client contact that you get. Do you think that that was something that factored into your decision when you decided to kind of step away from Impactlet and do direct legal services? Definitely. I had always actually been interested in social work, and I kind of thought, oh, if I don't go to law school, I might pursue that path. What I love about being a public defender is that I feel like 
but in addition to being an attorney and representing people in court, you are acting as a social worker, you are yeah. acting as an investigator, you're often the only person there supporting your, your individual client, which is a lot to take on, but I think that the client contact is really what sealed the deal for me. And knowing that I wouldn't really get that same experiencing impact litigation, it was pretty clear that I wanted to get that experience. That's cool. What would you say frustrates you the most about New Orleans courts? I've been very surprised practicing here at the lack of respect for the law, I guess you could say. It's it's as if the state of Louisiana or New Orleans is not even part of the United States. I honestly <laughs> feel that way. Like whenever I'm filing briefs, I'm always looking for Louisiana case law, Alabama case law even if there's a U.S. Supreme Court case that's on point because the judges here just do not find that convincing, which just blows my mind every that single day. That is wild. It is wild. I mean, I in a way, I kind of feel that, like my, my entire legal education and all that I've learned with respect to like federal criminal law just like really doesn't mean much here. I mean, it's great for framing issues, but in terms of practice, I'm just, I'm just shocked at how I, I don't really use any of that. In my practice here, and Louisiana isn't UBE, right? Like you correct. also, to, when you studied for the Louisiana bar, you had to study Louisiana specific law, right? Civil code, correct. It is. I've, it's the longest bar in the country. How it's three days, days, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, though. So they really stretch that out to a week, oh which my, is pretty terrible. Oh and most of it is not federal law, so it's Louisiana specific. I think most people who take the Louisiana bar actually went to law school here. There are a few people who actually move here to practice without having gone to law school here. And so I definitely think you're at a disadvantage in that respect because you just have never even heard of these civil code terms. Yeah. So. Do you think that the right to jury trial is respected in this country? Uh, so definitely no. Um, <laughs> specifically in my practice, although at every, every time someone's entering a not guilty plea at their arraignment, the judge explains to them their right to a jury trial if they're charged with a, a crime where they do actually have a right to a jury trial. Um, although that's done, that is honestly simply a formality. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. it's... I mean, I've been here for almost two years and I've never had a trial. Wow. I've only actually been practicing for about a, or for over a year and a half and I've never had a trial. And I've only really gotten very close to having a trial one to two times because usually the risk of losing at trial is just, is just not a, a risk worth taking for most people, just given the severe repercussions for sentencing if you were to lose that trial. And so I don't really think that that is a reality for most people and who are wrapped up in the criminal justice system. Can you explain plea agreements and how that factors into this? Sure. So usually there are some sections of court. So there are 12 sections of court here in the Orleans Criminal District Court. And the experience that a client has or that I have in his attorney in that section really depends on the judge in that section and the assistant district attorney assigned to that specific section. So they, one to two per section, deal with all of the cases in that section of court. 
Some of them have plea offers at arraignment. Some, you know, you must approach and ask for some kind of deal once you've looked at the discovery in a case, which you often don't get, discovery, for example. But when would, would you and when wouldn't you? So we should get it immediately, oh. but just the practices in this city make it so that it's very common that you don't actually get discovery. And judges are often forcing us to go forward with preliminary hearings without having key discovery like body camera footage from the arresting officers. So So the, you and your client have to make these decisions about how to plea without knowing what evidence correct. the police and prosecutor have. Correct. And often for example, judges chime in and will say, you know, if you don't take this plea offer, I'm gonna drug test you. And if you are positive for anything, then I am gonna remand you and increase your bond. Basically using many coercive tactics to get people to plead. And a lot of my clients have an extensive criminal mm -hmm. history, which make it so that even if they had an incredibly strong case, even if we had all the discovery and they were v completely innocent, it's likely not worth the risk of going to trial and losing because you, you could get 20 to life based on your prior convictions. So I think for most people, um, especially if they can get a plea deal where they don't have to do any jail time or they only do probation, that's usually what clients take. Yeah. And why do you think that the jury trials are so risky? Because it's hard to predict what a jury will do? Just the risk of losing and what your sentencing range would be if you lost. So there's the normal sentencing range for a given crime, but there's also a habitual offender law here in Louisiana okay. that makes it so that if you have one prior felony, that sentencing range increases. If you have two prior, it gets even higher, three priors even higher and if you have three prior felonies usually on your fourth you can get 20 to life even if you if it's a drug possession case wow. or a theft mm -hmm. and so that is obviously yeah terrifying to people and terrifying to me and it's just you know some people really want to fight cases even when they know that the evidence that the state has against them is really strong even knowing that what the risks are and sometimes oftentimes people don't want to take that risk yeah you visit angola prison frequently for your work can you tell us about the history of angola and what your work entails there yes so i'm um one of a few attorneys here at the Public Defender's Office that works in our, on our special litigation team. So in addition to writing appeals for the other staff attorneys here and writ applications to appeal other determina court determinations, we also have different areas of focus. I've recently been able, over the last year, been working with another staff attorney on resentencing uh, for individuals who received life sentences back in the 90s. So basically, ca recent case law has given a number of individuals who received life, life sentences the opportunity to go back before the trial court that gave them the life sentence to be resentenced under new, more lenient habitual offender, offender laws. So that requires me... So like me the four descriptions that you're giving are the current post-reform numbers? 
Yes. So someone can still, like, on the fourth felony conviction, go to prison for 20 to life? Yes. Okay. So what is the reform then? So generally, just to give an example, so someone who received a life sentence for possessing one crack rock back in the 90s, um, it made it so that if you had certain qualifying felonies, it was an automatic life sentence. Whereas now, the new range could be, if this person had uh, a prior armed robbery and two other drug charges, that person now could get 20 to life. And, And so these individuals have been filing pro se motions in court, and then the court has been appointing our office to help them with the resentencing. And so far in situations where the judge is presented with the opportunity to resentence someone from 20 to life on a possession of cocaine when the person has has already served over 20 years, they often just sentence them to credit for time served and and release them, even though they could give them another life sentence, just given the fact that they are doing life for a drug possession case. Most judges have just been releasing them. And why is it that there's a lot of folks housed in Angola that are doing these pro se motions? So... My understanding is that you're only housed in goal if you're doing 40 years or more, if your sentence is 40 years or more. And so the majority of people who are at Angola are doing essentially life sentences. If it's not actually life, it is a virtual life sentence. So it's been like that historically. I'm not sure exactly if it's been like that all the time, but there are many people at Angola who were sentenced to life all over the state who are filing these pro se motions. And there are actually really incredible inmate counsel mm-hmm. programs at all of these prisons who who I'm in touch with. They're filing all these pro se motions on behalf of all of the people who are eligible. So it's really great. Right, so there's jailhouse lawyers who are doing this? Yes. Okay, I love this and I feel like this is something that you don't know unless you visit detention Definitely. centers or prisons a lot. So because folks and are incarcerated for long periods of time, they end up becoming really, you know, some people end up becoming really savvy about the law and they utilize the law library to their highest capacities, which is saying a lot because these law libraries are often underfunded, under-resourced, like the law is not always current <laughs> in the books that they're given and uh, they advocate for themselves and for others around them. And I saw that a lot in immigration detention centers where I was like, wow, this immigration brief is like as good as my colleagues. Right. You know? Or we often get ideas from members of inmate council. In mm-hmm. fact, a number of times we've gone to Angola and met with members of inmate council and they've been very helpful and informative and helping us, you know, get people out and achieve our goals um, and learning more about different prohibitions within the jail, within the the prison system, and also hearing about cases in other parishes that we wouldn't necessarily hear about Mm -hmm. since we're in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. since they have reach all over the state. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So Angola used to be a plantation, right? Yes. And then it was converted into a prison. Can you talk more about that history? Yes. So Angola was a plantation, as you said, and it was immediately turned into a prison after it was no longer a plantation. So this land has served as a plantation where enslaved people were and then immediately turned to a prison. And 
you know, I hadn't really ever been to a plantation before moving to Louisiana, given that I'm from California. So it was incredibly striking the first time that I ever went to Angola. It's, it's quite beautiful, actually, as many plantations are, but the, the rich and oppressive history is also very present Mm -hmm. from the moment you step on to the property. The majority of people who are sent to Angola to do time have to actually work in the fields. So Angola, I don't know how big it is, but it's, I believe it's the largest correctional facility in the, in the country. Um, and it, wow. And the people who are there are really serving 40 years or more. Yes. Wow. And everyone usually for the first 90 days has to work in the fields. And if you have some kind of disciplinary issue, you're sent to the cell blocks where you have to work in the fields, picking cotton and other vegetables that the state sells to other parts of the state. So I will never forget one of the, recently one of of the times I went to Angola, we were driving from one of the camps to another to visit another client. And there was, there were two white men sitting on horses, holding rifles, pointed down at a group of 20 black men picking cotton in the field. And... I mean, it's as if no time has passed right. from when it was a plantation to what it what it looks like now. Right. Especially because people are still paid slave wages for the work that they do while they're incarcerated. Yes, and that they're required to pay for their medical care and whatever else they need. They're required to pay for their medical care? My understanding is that they are, yes. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. How does that work, even? You know, I actually don't know that much about it. I I just know that people, if, I mean, most people aren't released, but that people who are released are released with medical, medical debt that I guess whatever, whatever they've made is used to pay that off. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Arizona's prisons are also obviously just very blatantly profit-making mechanisms. And I interviewed folks who said that they had to pay for the towel that they had and they had to pay for like their prison uniform and they had to pay electricity every month for to be in a situation that they did not you didn't opt to be there and right. considering what we were just saying about coercive plea agreements that make it so that people don't really fully get to enjoy their right to trial it's really sickening and really the the entire state benefits from the work of the inmates in Angola there is a license plate shop there there are people that have so many incredible skills who are housed at Angola that do so much work for the prison, for the surrounding communities, and really for the state. I mean, it produces, the farms at Angola produce a considerable amount of crops for the state of Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. So I know that you do a lot of advocacy around sex offender registries and in the conversation around prison abolition, uh, people always point to quote unquote to murders or, you know, specifically what we're talking about right now, like rapists or sex offenders. And they point to these people as examples of people who we want to shun from our society completely. And... 
how do you talk to people about why we shouldn't vilify sex offenders? And because I think that that's a really important critical next step. I think we're gaining traction in the conversation around prison abolition, but you know, there aren't really people who are like, I am a sex offender advocate. Right. Yeah. It's not, not a hot topic. Yeah. I mean, I think I would just start by saying that I don't think anyone should be vilified. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that is, that's where the major issue lies in that most, all the people I work with would just, just strongly believe that no one should be vilified. And so the distinction between rapists and other criminals is not really one that we have in our own minds. I'd also like to point out that many people who have been convicted of sex crimes are innocent mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. and have been, you know, forced to take pleas under these coercive means without having a fair jury trial. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think it does. I think that if you're going to be, I've said this before, but if you're going to be a public defender, if you're going to do deportation defense, you have to firmly believe in the principle that everybody deserves zealous counsel. Correct. Yeah. And if you can't like personally get over that for whatever reason, you need to not do this be work. a different <laughs> type of lawyer. I agree. I mean, I also just, I strongly believe for that person who did brutally rape someone like I I don't think that someone should be punished for for one bad thing that they did for the rest of their lives I strongly believe that and I mean I really got into this sex offender work because of the really harsh treatment of sex offender registrants once they are released from prison once they have done the time for the crime Louisiana has, if not the harshest sex offender registration requirements, close to it. And I I believe it's the only state that has exorbitant fees associated with complete registration and notification compliance, where it it requires uh, registrants to come up with a thousand plus dollars to be in full compliance and failure to come up with that money could result in additional felony convictions for failure to register. And so the state of Louisiana has really created a system that is just setting up these individuals who've been deemed sex offenders, have really set them up to fail. There's really, especially indigent sex offender registrants, Mm -hmm. the people who are my clients, do not have $1,000 to be fully compliant, and they can be charged with failure to register solely because they're unable to pay for the fees. And that's just one part of crazy registration scheme here that's really, in my opinion, created to just trap people in the system. Yeah, I mean, that's just obviously a money-making mechanism because that, like, the, the thing <laughs> I, that's, I don't, I can't understand what policy justification is given for that. Right, and the thing that's crazy to me is that it costs more money to incarcerate someone for failure to register than it would be for the state to just pay for the registration fees. Oh, wow. Because the minimum... The sentencing range for your first failure to register is two to ten years, <gasps> and for any second or subsequent is five to twenty years. What are the aggravating factors that could get you to ten years? So, I've actually never seen anyone take that much time you because could, most yeah. people plead. So I've never actually uh, seen see. these cases go to trial because there's usually no legal defense. You know, like it's not yeah, it's right. not a defense that you couldn't afford it. 
Right. The Louisiana Supreme Court has recently stated that it is unconstitutional to arrest people solely for their inability to pay, which is pretty obvious to us, <laughs> but not obvious to the lawmakers and police officers in the state. Unfortunately, that is not really being implemented. I was going to say, is that's a game changer for you all, right? It, it would be a game changer. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one seems to agree about who exactly should be making the determination of indigency or whether someone is attempting to pay or unable to pay. And so NOPD or local police throughout the state seem to believe that it's their job to arrest people if they fail to do something. And then it's up to the trial court to determine whether or not it was willful. And at that point, someone has been arrested, someone is sitting in jail, has lost their housing, has lost their job, their children, etc. Here in Louisiana, another crazy thing about Louisiana is that for felonies, the state has 60 days if someone's incarcerated to decide whether or not they actually want to move forward and formally prosecute the person. So 60 days from arrest, someone could be sitting in jail. And on the 60th day, the state could say, actually, we don't we don't want to prosecute you for this crime and then you're just released after 60 days well it's crazy so they at that point are they charged technically they're charged but they have not filed a formal bill of information with the court they've not accepted the charge as a terminology that we use so they have longer to decide whether or not they want to do that if you're not in jail, but you could be sitting in jail for 60 days. And bringing it back to the sex offender registrant and inability to pay, if you were unable to pay for the registration, you could sit in jail for 60 days before you could even present that information to a judge. The fact that you were doing everything you're supposed to except for paying the fees because you were unable to pay them. So, yeah, you wouldn't be able to present that evidence to the judge until... Two months later. Two months later. I mean, that's the earliest you'd be able to present it. That's wild. So, we've been chatting for around 40 minutes. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could talk about this for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else that you you we haven't gotten to yet that you feel like is important to share for anyone who wants to be a public defender any advice that you have for them yeah it's it's really hard work i think that it's really important to recognize that you don't have a lot of control that your clients and you have been put in really terrible circumstances and that's not your fault Mm -hmm. and that you are it's physically impossible for you to do everything that you need to do in a single day. It's just impossible. And you have to accept that and let that go. And I think in order to survive this work, you know, I think in the beginning, I would just think like, Oh no, I have this guy who's in jail. And like he, if I don't do this one thing tonight, he is going to stay in jail just for that reason. And it's all my fault that this person's in jail Mm -hmm. when it's like, no, actually, I did not put that person in jail. I did not create this fucked up system that we live in that has made it so that this person is incarcerated. And I can only do what I can do. Mm -hmm. And there is a physical and emotional 
and mental limit to that. And if I'm not mindful of those limits, I, I will be hurting my clients even more. Right. Yeah. Cause that's a thing. And that's why people shouldn't feel selfish when they're taking care of themselves because actually burnout is very real and it's really easy to get there if you don't take self-care seriously. And the social justice movement does not need more martyrs, you know, like, yes, <laughs> especially as women of color, like we deserve to have joy in our lives. So I, I approve of this message. Yes. It's, it's really important. Something that I learned very early on because yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to just do this for two years and then right. leave. I really want to make this sustainable. And I, I definitely think self-care is the number one piece. Mm-hmm. Yay. All right. I hope you all enjoyed this interview. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>